0: Welcome back to the Get Blown Away podcast. My name is Megan Finnegan.
1: And I'm Julia Gentile.
0: On this episode, we'd like to welcome Senator Chris Hansen, the current state senator for Colorado Senate District 31.
1: After receiving a bachelor's degree in nuclear engineering from Kansas State University, he attained a master's degree from MIT and a PhD in economic geography from Oxford University before pursuing a career in public service as a state legislator. With expertise in both engineering and public policy, he specializes in... in energy sector economics and data analytics and and is affectionately referred to as the climate king.
0: Senator Hansen also serves as the co-founder and director of programming at the Colorado Energy and Water Institute and as co-founder of the Colorado Science and Engineering Policy Fellowship, of which I had the pleasure to be a part of last summer. We're so excited to have him on the podcast and learn more about how public policy can shape the future of the renewable energy transition. Senator Hansen, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Awesome. Um, well, so our first question is sort of about your role as one of four engineers in the Colorado State Legislature. Um, so, in what capacities do you use your training as an engineer now that you're in the legislature?
2: Yeah, it's a great question, and um, you know, it was obviously one that we got to dive into this past summer, where I, it was so great to have a bunch of science and engineering students come join me at the Capitol uh, to try to get more scientists and engineers interested in policy. But if I think about my job as a legislator, I feel like I use my engineering degree every single day. You know, in a a normal session, uh, the the Colorado legislature meets every spring, you know, from January to May, 120-day session, and we typically look at 800 or so bills every, every time we get together each year. And at least half of those have a science or technology component to them in some way. And so I feel like having a, a background in engineering has helped me so much uh, to, to tackle tough problems, to, to look at data, to analyze a situation uh, you know, before you write the bill, to make sure that you're hitting the mark. So there's so many ways I feel like my engineering background has helped me as a legislator.
1: That's pretty incredible.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, it's crazy we don't have more legislators with that background, considering how much technical information and knowledge goes into the process.
2: Yeah, you know, you're right. There's there's not very many. I mean, there's a hundred legislators in Colorado, 65 in the House, 35 in the Senate, and as you pointed out in your introduction, there's only four of us that have engineering backgrounds, um, and so well, four percent, right? Quick math, and it it certainly would be great if we had had a few more uh, scientists and engineers. But it's also a, an opportunity to make a big contribution and and fill in some of the gaps uh, on on some of these tough bills, and and then balance that out with all the other great skills from my colleagues, right? We got lawyers and uh you know, medical uh, backgrounds and uh, teachers and ranchers and everything in between, and that's I think what makes our legislature great.
0: Awesome. Okay, it sounds it looks like Chase is here. So, quick break.
1: Okay. So, I guess my follow-up question to that was how easy of a transition or how clear was the path for you when you graduated with all these, you know, science and technology degrees and ended up becoming a legislator? Was that something you intended for yourself or did you kind of just fall into it and end up enjoying it as a career?
2: Yeah, you know, it was a, it was a big transition because I, after I finished my PhD, I went into the private sector for 10 years and had a really wonderful uh, career at, at a company called IHS, which is now part of S&P. And and got to do energy uh, projects all over the world was posted to dubai was in singapore new zealand uh, exotic michigan like we all over the place uh doing doing work and really enjoyed that Um, but i think for me i'd had a long interest in policy and politics i think for me it actually started in high school debate like people have asked me what piqued your interest in politics i think it goes back to when i was 14 and my first uh, debate tournament as a freshman in high school and, and just to really been involved in politics in some way ever since. Uh, as a volunteer, helping out on campaigns, trying to raise money for candidates I believed in. I started Democrats Abroad Clubs when I was in the UK. I started another one when I was in uh, UAE. And so it was a long time uh, interest of mine. And when the House seat, the, the state House seat that I lived in in East Denver came open, I was like, all right, it's time to put my money where my mouth is. And so I quit my job, uh, kind of burned the ships behind me and started campaigning. And knocked on thousands of doors and uh, just worked as hard as I could to reach out to the community and was fortunate to be elected uh, in the 2016 election.
1: That's awesome. That's a great story. Um, I hope whoever listens to this this podcast gets inspired to, you know, maybe increase their range of interest instead of just, you know, the engineering field.
2: Yeah, and I I think that's one of the, I mean, one of the great things about engineering curriculum is you get this depth on the technical side and have great skills, you know, in, in technical fields, but there's hardly any time or space for engineers to take electives in other, you know, political science or economics or other fields they might be interested in. And so, you know, I, I guess I've always um, felt like that was an important part of what I was trying to do with my career is make sure I was getting some, some breadth along with that depth.
0: So, yeah, well, we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about energy because um, that's one of the issues that, you know, you've done a lot of legislation about. Um, what do you see as wind energy's role being in the context of Colorado's generation portfolio, especially as we see uh, a lot of continued interest in EVs with more demand um, and hoping to get away from traditional energy generation?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I really see a very bright future for wind and, and solar and batteries and, and all, the, all the climate tech that we're going to need to decarbonize Colorado. And we've made some really clear commitments in legislation that we're going to get to net zero by 2050 and and do it in a way that uh, we show steady progress all the way to that point. We can't procrastinate. We can't do it all in 2049. We've got to get going yesterday on this important work. And the good news for Colorado is that huge growth in wind, followed by now huge growth in solar and soon to be followed by huge growth in storage to really be complementary to the wind and solar capacity is taking off really fast. Wind led the way, Uh, if anybody's driven on the Eastern Plains which I just did last weekend when I went back to see family in Kansas and Nebraska, massive amount of wind capacity and we're gonna double and triple that over the next 10 to 15 years. So gigawatts of new wind turbines going in, gigawatts of new solar capacity that's gonna be built in Colorado uh, and that's the exciting part. And, and you know, for your other friends uh, in, in engineering program, uh, there's massive opportunity on the career front, like, to go apply all this great technical skill that you've built up in, uh, during your time at CU. And, and I, I think the future's so very bright for, for all of this development. And then add on top of that, the billions of dollars we've got to spend in transmission to get all of that new capacity to the customer. And so those are the areas that I've been trying to work really hard on legislatively is making sure that all the pieces of that puzzle come together at the right time. Because it's not good enough just to say, oh, new wind farm, that's great. But we also have to have new transmission, upgraded distribution system, helping people get EV charging in their homes or in their neighborhoods. Maybe they're an apartment dweller and they don't have a garage they can put their EV in, right? We've got to solve all these different parts of the puzzle to make sure it comes together in a way that helps make people's lives easier, cheaper, and much lower emissions. And that's really the overall goal of what we've been doing legislatively.
1: Um, So, uh, moving on to another legislation-related question. Um, What legislation, either in Colorado or at a different level, would be the most effective to support the wind industry? Um, in your opinion?
2: Yeah, you know, I think given that we've got the federal incentives, the IRA and and the production tax credits historically for wind, I think that's in a pretty good spot. And the marginal cost of wind now has fallen to less than $20 a megawatt hour, in some cases below 15, depending on the site. So the economics of wind right now are very compelling. Some supply chain issues, inflation, there's always going to be some some problems. uh, But the actual construction of the wind turbines is in a great spot. The big pacing factor now is interconnection to the grid. And that's why in 2021, I worked uh, on a transmission bill to try to accelerate development of new transmission capacity in the state. Because without that, we can't add the wind that we need. We can't add the solar that we need and have the grid function. On top of that, not only do we need more lines in Colorado and more transmission capacity in Colorado, but we need to interconnect with our neighbors. And right now, the western U.S. is kind of broken up into 37, 38 grids that don't have a lot of capacity to share power back and forth. And if you think about wind power in particular, you need a grid that is bigger than the weather because there's always going to be some place that the wind is blowing, but there's also going to be times when the wind's not blowing. But if you've got a grid that is more than 1,000 miles wide, which is typically how big a weather front is in a a moment, then you've got uh, a way to have a portfolio effect and balance it across the whole system, and the wind is always going to be blowing somewhere. The sun is always going to be shining somewhere, even on—it might be cloudy in Boulder, it's going to be sunny in New Mexico. So as long as we get to work on the grid side— now we've set up a, a situation for great success for adding gigawatts of wind, adding gigawatts of solar. Without it, we're going to have a bottleneck.
0: Yeah. How? So you're talking a lot about all this legislation to really improve the state of energy for not just Coloradans, but people across America. How do we make sure that that benefit is felt by all, um, including those and especially those who are paying more for Um, electricity, being in rural communities, who have more challenges to get those benefits.
2: Yeah. Well, I think this is relatively a good news story in Colorado because I I hear you loud and clear. We've got to do this in a way that doesn't price people out of uh, the electricity. They have their bills be so high that it, it causes them difficulty with their household budgets. And we know there are hundreds of thousands of families that face those sorts of decisions in Colorado. So this is a very real problem. I think the good news, though, is that wind and solar, and even wind and solar with batteries integrated into the projects, is cheaper than fossil-fueled alternatives right now. So think about uh, an old coal-fired power station like the one in Pueblo. Um, it's producing power uh, $30, $40 a megawatt-hour. Wind and solar, typically below 20 So we can actually lower people's costs over time as we integrate more renewables into the system. So this is one of these great win-wins of lower cost and lower emissions. And I think for folks who have a lot of, say, energy poverty is sometimes used as the term where a big chunk of their household budget or monthly budget is going to their utility bill, we have a, a pathway, I think, in Colorado where we can actually lower those bills over time after you adjust for inflation. And then we've seen that happen over the last 20 years. So I've, I remain really optimistic about that. And if you think about the broader work that we need to do around electrification, helping mm-hmm. lower income families get EVs, electric heat pumps, better energy efficiency for their homes, insulation, et cetera, we've got other state programs that are really trying to focus on on that piece of the puzzle. So we're, we're looking at it in a comprehensive way and making sure nobody gets left behind in this energy transition.
1: Right. So um, you had mentioned before that upgrading the grid and making sure the grid can handle all this new energy coming in is something that needs to be done simultaneously as developing these, you know, renewable energy plants and farms and whatnot. So I'm actually curious about this because it's a challenge that we're facing in one um, portion of our project. But do you see potentially decommissioning, you know, these old coal power plants and maybe even natural gas and replacing what they would have generated at, with renewable um, situations as a potential solution to that issue of, you know, or not issue, but goal of lowering the energy cost.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly what's happening in Colorado and, and in lots of places around the globe. Um, Colorado is will stop using coal power in 2030. We will close down the last coal plant in, in 2030. Um, and that was some legislation that I worked on in 2019. We are going to wind down the use of gas in our system over time. It's going to take a bit longer, um, but you're going to really see the ability of a better grid, better solar, better wind and cheaper batteries pushing out fossil from all parts of our electricity system. And I would say, you know, by 2035, I think we're going to be at 92, 93% decarbonization. By 2040, the idea is that we get to 100% zero. Uh, And so, uh, you know, there's lots of work to be done between now and 2040, but This is going to really accelerate. And the big utilities in the state, like Excel, for example, has already said we're going to get to at least 80% zero carbon by 2030. Probably, I would guess they're going to do a little better than that. It's going to be more like 85%. So we're on a great trajectory. And if we can continue down this path, uh, and as these technologies get even better it will only add more momentum to this transition. So I, I'm feeling, as you can probably guess by my my tone, very bullish about, about this. And, you know, the wind turbine technology is getting uh, cheaper every year. Solar's getting cheaper every year. Batteries are getting cheaper every year. And it will only add more momentum to this change.
0: That's
1: really exciting news, I think, when people, you know, think of climate change and going net zero. There's a lot of, you know, darkness around it um but i'm glad that you think that it's going to be um where it needs to be in you know 10-15 years time that's really encouraging um for me to hear and hopefully whoever's listening leaves here with you know a better outlook on the energy crisis and where colorado at least is moving
2: yeah it also means a ton of work for you guys as you graduate from engineering school um and it's going to be your generation that's going to make this happen and so I think there's a there's a very optimistic story there. But we also have to be realistic. You know, we're we're looking, you know, COP28 is about ready to start in Dubai. Um, we are not making as fast a progress as, as we know we need to. We have almost guaranteed 1.5 to 1.6 degrees of change. Um, and the question now is, can your generation, because mine kind of messed it up, can your generation keep us below 2.0? Uh, and if we don't... Um, The ski season starts to disappear. The wildfires accelerate. The drought gets worse, right? Colorado is going to feel it in a very real way. So there's an urgency to this work as well, but I also want people to feel optimistic about it because of the technology trends, because of the huge number of jobs we're going to be able to create, and the fact that we can actually make things cheaper for people over time as we lower emissions. So there's a lot of good parts to this story, also lots of work to be done.
0: Yeah, and I think this sense of optimism is something that's really important and and not always focused on in this work because it is a really big challenge. It's a crisis and it should be treated as such. Um, but I think one of my big takeaways from this summer um, at the fellowship is that there's hope, um, but there's also work. And I'm just curious um, of everything that you've done sort of to support the Colorado Science and Engineering Policy Fellowship. What have you learned from being part of that or taken away from, from all of us crazy fellows?
2: Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, we just had our seventh cohort. Uh, so glad to have you in this latest class. Um, it really re-energizes me every summer to have a group of talented uh, young science and engineering students come join me and, and uh, my colleague, uh, Senator Simpson, uh, Republican from San Luis Valley, would do this in a very bipartisan way, nonpartisan way. To come and do research to look at the cutting edge of technology and try to integrate that into state policy, and that really gets me uh, fired up for the next session. And how can I take these ideas and immediately turn them into legislation, into bills, and and make a positive change for the state? And you know this can be hard, lonely work sometimes. And I have found you know at the end of the session you're kind of tuckered out and. Uh, maybe one of your bills didn't make it or you're feeling a bit cynical or uh, pessimistic about something. And then for all these great students to come in in June and just be like, all right, let's get back to work and figure out the next step. Um, I have found it a really important part of, of my work at the Capitol. And I'm I'm just so glad to have the fellows come every summer.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. And I mean, we enjoyed it all, too. It's great to still be in touch with the fellows and and to hear so many different up- Ideas and perspectives from people around the state about ways that we can tackle so many of the big problems that we have. It's really fun.
1: Yeah. So I guess branching off of that, um, since you've met so many, you know, optimistic individuals through the fellowship, and there's plenty more that weren't a part of that that we see here every day. Um, what advice would you have for engineers looking to make a big difference, whether it's in the renewable energy industry as a whole, the wind indus- industry, or in the, you know, policy part. Portion of this entire, you know, movement of change that we're trying to make.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think my advice is, you absolutely need to be technically excellent, and you will be when you graduate from CU with an engineering degree. But push yourself to get in some new situations to tackle problems from a different angle. Uh, Go see some lectures on things that you wouldn't otherwise get in engineering school. Uh, Take advantage of the fact that you're on a big university campus and dive into um, issues around disproportionate impacts of communities. How do we have uh, economic justice, environmental justice, as we do the technical work? So it's not good enough just to be getting an A in Thermo, uh, which I did not do, just to be clear. <laughs>
1: uh,
2: it's not good enough just to master the engineering skills. You've got to push yourself to understand uh, the, the environmental, the societal context in which you do the work. And solving the biggest puzzles of our of our age means marrying technical skill with the social sciences with outreach to all communities to put put the solutions together and don't forget that through your engineering time in engineering school add that to what you're doing and you'll be ready to take off after you graduate
1: that's great advice i think that um like we had mentioned a little bit before, but as part of the CWC competition, all three pillars of, you know, sustainability are really pushed in the work that we do, and I think in the future it might be good to push on in all areas of engineering as well. You know, the social, um, the social part, the economical part, and the technical part, um, all in one. I do have one other question that is a little um, not related, but. I traveled a lot this summer and I heard a lot of people pronounce turbine. So is it turbine or turbine from where you're from?
2: For me it's turbine. Turbine? Yep. Yeah, that's what happens when you grow up in Kansas. It's a wind turbine.
1: That's fair enough. For me it
0: will always be turbine, but I guess we'll just have to agree to disagree. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm a switch hitter so I can I can balance. Can go this back out. and forth. Yep. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, that was our, our prepared list of questions. Is there anything else that you'd like our listeners to know about what you're up to right now or what you're excited about for the next legislative session?
2: Oh, yeah. I love that question. Well, I'm going to take a bunch of the projects from the Summer Fellows and turn them into bills. Uh, one in particular around virtual power plants. Uh, I'm really excited to get going on that new piece of legislation. We're going to look very hard at how we can improve our distribution system in, in the state. You know, you think about Somebody wanting to put rooftop on their solar or, or sorry, solar on their rooftop, um, adding a new heat pump and replacing their furnace with an electric heat pump. And so much of that depends on our distribution system being uh, strong enough. So we've got investments we need to make there. And marrying that up with this idea of virtual power plants where you can control demand and dispatch load is one way to think about it. Uh, is something that can add a huge amount of value to the grid. And so that's going to be a legislative push for me. I kind of started my career working on the generation side. We've made big progress there that we've already talked about. In 21, 22, I did a lot of work on transmission. Now it's time for us to do more work on the distribution system. So kind of the G, the T, and the D, and get the whole puzzle put together. So that's, that's my big plan for 2024.
0: Yeah, that's all so exciting. Um, Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and sharing all of your awesome insights about policy and engineering and renewable energy. Um, Yeah, thank you. All right. Thanks for having me. Well, it was so great to be joined by Senator Chris Hansen. Um, Julia, what were your big takeaways from his conversation with us?
1: I think my biggest takeaway was how... um, Hopeful and positive, his outlook was on the climate crisis. As an environmental engineering major, most of my courses are actually um, focused on tackling environmental challenges, and the climate crisis is obviously a huge one. And I almost never leave those sessions feeling good. Um, And I think some people who may think that they want to help make a difference may feel discouraged and choose a different career path because of how overwhelming the problem may seem but to hear someone who's actually you know at the forefront of tackling it in a different form um be super excited and have you know a positive outlook and think that it's possible to make a difference and get to where we need to be to where you know we don't have these catastrophic changes is really encouraging and I feel good after listening to Senator Hanson yeah I
0: mean I totally agree I think his optimism is so refreshing um Because it's rare um, and so important um, to keep doing all this great work. I mean, like you said, it it doesn't mean it's not an issue. It most certainly is. And there's a lot of work to be done. And, you know, luckily there's a lot of people who are willing to put the pedal to the metal and excited to tackle this big challenge, um, which is really important. I think, you
1: know, you also will find that the people who are most interested, and maybe this is just me talking from experience, but the people who are most interested in tackling it are, you know, the engineers who specify that they want to do something within renewable energy. And, you know, whether that's within mechanical, electrical, um, environmental um, engineering, you know, you might think at first that that is the path you're going to take. You're going to be do- doing something technical to handle it. But there are so many other career options and paths, not just for engineers, but for anyone who wants to be a part of it and maybe doesn't want to, you know, go through all the math, yeah, even totally. though that's what Senator Hansen did. Right. Um To become part of the change. Um, And I think everyone should know that when they're coming into college or even leaving college and pursuing a career, a master's, PhD, whatever it may be.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a great point because I think one of the biggest skills I've learned throughout my engineering degree is problem solving. And this is a problem um, unlike any that humanity has really faced before. So of course, it's the engineers who see this problem and are like, let's go tackle this. Um, and let's all team up and, and make some solutions that are going to improve people's lives, which is really inspiring. And it's really cool to see, you know, Senator Hansen with this background in engineering. And, you know, he's really geared towards problem solving. And he's, you know, someone I really look up to as taking those skills and running with them. So I'm really hoping that, you know, we have more people who are looking at the facts and understanding the literature in the process of legislating and making well-informed scientific-based decisions.
1: Yeah, I think we definitely need more of that. And, you know, I look up to him too now. I, it was really incredible meeting him. Um, thank you for that connection through,
0: what was it called again, that fellowship program? Yeah, the Colorado Science and Engineering
1: Policy Fellowship. Yeah, that is so great that you have that connection on hand for us.
0: Yeah, we're so lucky to be joined with hi- by him, and I'm so grateful that he's You know, really pushing for his community, and it's really inspiring me to want to do the same, Um, and hopefully, lots of our other listeners too.
1: All right. Well, thank you all for tuning in. We hope that you learned something new and maybe um, are leaving here with a new sense of positivity revolving um, surrounding the climate crisis. Um, If you have any questions or want to follow up, uh, learn more about Megan and I and the program that we're in, um, feel free to reach out to us at CU wind Team Instagram.
0: Thanks for everyone who helped put together the podcast. Um, Elise for coordinating, Dane for the editing, Julia, Gentile, and Megan Finnegan are your hosts. And then, of course, Senator Chris Hansen and his lovely aides, Rachel and Chase, for everything. And uh, hopefully we'll catch you on the next episode. Hopefully you were blown away. Till next time. Let's go wind! really inspiring me to want to do the same um and hopefully lots of our other listeners too
1: you heard it here first look out for senator megan finnegan oh my um, in twenty <laughs> twenty twenty thirty twenty thirty five, 2030 2035 maybe oh my gosh maybe not for colorado who knows um who knows? i'll be looking oh